Welcome to Be Customer-Led, where we'll explore how leading experts in customer and employee experience are navigating organizations through their own journey to be customer-led and the actions and behaviors employees and businesses exhibit to get there. And now, your host, Bill Stagos. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another week of Be Customer Led. I'm your host, Bill Stakos. Another amazing guest, folks, this week. We have Kimberly Weefling, who is the uh, founder and president of Weefling Consulting. They focus on creating productive and super amazing cultures for their clients. She's also the co-founder of a really cool organization called Silicon Valley Alliances and does consulting through there as well. And just like a really amazing high-energy person. I can't wait. Kimberly, so awesome to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Bill. Oh my gosh. Wow. It's been exciting to think about this and I'm so glad to be here. I know. I can't wait. So you are really, I mean, I've, you know, for every guest, I do like the NSA level of <laughs> kind of like groundwork and research, right? So like everything that you have out there talking about building cultures, leadership, that's what we're going to focus the show on. But before we get going, tell us a little bit about your journey you know, why did you start this company 20 plus years ago? Like what was the driver of there? And then you've got a great professional journey, which I think our listeners are going to love. I give you the two minute version. I started off growing up in the rural areas of Western Pennsylvania. You know, I like to tell people I was raised by wolves and, you know, I didn't know anything about the business world or anything uh, so sophisticated as what I've experienced in the last 20 years. So when I was 18, I joined the military, got out of the house, got my GI Bill, got out of there, went to college for seven years. I wanted to be a scientist, Bill. I wanted to be a scientist. I thought science was so cool. When I it was still a kid, is. I had an Alka-Seltzer powered rocket for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> but then I got into Hewlett Packard and I started repairing their instrumentation, mass spectrometers. It was really cool. Hardware, software, firmware, liquids, gases, high vacuum, high pressures. It was very interesting for me from a scientific standpoint. But what I noticed was the human being aspects were the most important with my yeah. customers, with the team. Have you noticed that's the human skills we didn't study at all in science and engineering? That's it. Like that will really make or break, right? I mean, you have the quote, the, the famous Drucker quote, your LinkedIn, right? Culture yeah. eats uh, strategy for breakfast, right? I actually right. just used that quote in a, in a post recently, which is... Uh, I think actually, no, even a blog post. So love that quote. I can't believe it. I'm so embarrassed by the way I behaved when I was a young professional. Now, when I go back to meet my old friends from Hewlett Packard, I always say, I am so sorry for how I behaved when we worked together. Because after I quit Hewlett Packard, I joined startup companies, which was actually a better fit for my personality. Yep. Like this is genetic, Bill. Okay. My whole family's like, this. I, I'm the most calm of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had half, like an ounce of as much energy as you do. <laughs> so as you look back, you know, it was like, yeah, just kind of go along and get along and don't annoy people too much. Yeah. And of course, get results. But I really felt like a hired assassin there, you know. Yeah, we need Kimberly for this hard work, but we don't want to be seen dining with her. So uh, then I quit and I started, I worked at three failed startup companies in Silicon Valley. Here I was in Silicon Valley with this boring job at HP with all this job security. And I finally just said, great, let me join the Silicon Valley startup. 
and uh, let me play the Silicon Valley lottery, you know, yeah. see if we can get a ticket to a prize, which allows us to quit the jobs we hate. <laughs> <laughs> so three failed startups later came the dot-com bust. And I'd always wanted to have my own business. And I had a little business on the side. And I'm like, why don't I start my business in the worst possible economy? Yeah, great idea. <laughs> so I did it oh, 20 years oh. ago. The first five years were the hardest. I'm sure a lot of organizations, right, start in some of the worst economic times, right? And they come out so much stronger because they're bootstrapping, they're, they're, they're mindful of where they're spending, how they're engaging customers, et cetera. I love that story. I look, there's so much going on in the world, right? Great recession, great boomerang. People yeah. got to come back to work, et cetera, five days a week, all this stuff. Let's first by start talking about your definition of company culture. And then similarly, what is your definition of leadership? Great. So I have to thank my wonderful mentor, Dr. Edgar Schein. He's like 94 years old now, and he's the guy who invented the term organizational culture. He was an MIT professor, and he lives close by to me at Stanford University near the Stanford campus. And I paid him to have lunch with me every month for like three years so I could understand how my work was really about organizational culture. And what I've come to understand from Dr. Shine is organizational culture, it's the way we do things around here, even though we've forgotten why we do it. All it's right. like the air we breathe, it surrounds us, it influences everything, but nobody really notices it explicitly. So it's your values in action. How do people behave? What do you fire your best engineer for violating? Things like that. You know, you really see what the values in action are when you say, look at your top performing people and what will you fire them for? That's the culture. The, the lowest common denominator accepted, right? At the end of the day, well, like, yeah, which is, what is yeah. the lowest common denominator that you accept? And there's one company that has something called, after Bob Sutton, you know, the Stanford professor, the no asshole rule. Yeah. I mean, some companies actually have this rule. And they tell their interviewees during the interview process, you know, if you're an asshole and we hire you and we find out we will fire you, some people actually get up during the interview and leave. <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible that people know that they are. They won't openly admit it, but they know it, which means that you shouldn't be right at the end of the day. How do you define leadership, Kimberly? Like, what's the difference there for you? And how does that connect to culture? You know, Bill, I like to base my work on facts and well-researched data. So I look at what has been studied about leadership for the past 30 years. And in a nutshell, it's leaders set direction, align people in that direction and motivate and inspire them to go in that direction. Whereas managers plan, organize, control, and correct. And both are important, but the leadership has a much higher impact on results. Barry Posner and Jim Cousins at Santa Clara University down the road here, they've done 30 years of research from, what is it, over 70 different countries? What are the characteristics and behaviors of the best leaders on planet Earth? And what I mean by the best is leaders people admire and willingly follow. And what they found is over 80% of people said, if you're not honest, we don't follow you willingly. Forward-looking was the second globally. Inspiring was the third, and fourth was competent. They don't care if you're competent if you're not forward-looking or inspiring for crying out loud. What do you think about that? 
You can be dumb. It's okay. But as long as you get the most out of me, I'm good with that. That's what that, that's what the research boils down to, right? No, but the leadership challenge that they distilled out, it's like, here's five practices of the best leaders in the world with six specific behaviors and none of them are rocket science. And by the way, none of them require a position or title. So it's like model the way, inspire shared vision, challenge the process, enable others to act and encourage the heart. And by the way, encourage the heart. Those six behaviors in that category are the least practiced in the world. When you think about leaders and managers, Kimberly, this is like always like the big topic that I feel like I'm, I'm always grappling with. Can you be both? Do you have oh, to you be have both? To. You have to be both. I think you have to be both. Both of them are important. But I tell people like this. Lead people, manage cows. <laughs> Lead people, manage budget, manage yep. schedule, but don't you manage me. Nobody likes to be managed. I went to yeah. Bulgaria a few years ago before uh, the great pandemic. And I asked people, 2,000 people in the audience, please raise your hand if you like to be managed. Nobody raises their hand. I'm like, is it a language barrier? Do you understand what I'm saying? They're like, yes, Kimberly, we understand. <laughs> we just don't want to be Lead people manage cows. I want to make the audiogram. We're cutting that one out for the audiogram. I love that. Can I steal that? Can we use that as a? I want to put that quote actually on a LinkedIn post when we've dropped this show. Uh, I love that. I've never heard it. Make a little video. Let's do it together. What's new? (laughs) I love it. I love it. Why do you think companies are failing at the things that employees are looking for? Like, what's what is it about? the translation from company to leader slash manager to employee or workforce, right? There are a lot of people that are not W-2s as we would call them here in the U.S. Like what's the disconnect? Why do you think that's happening? I'll tell you what I found. First, I got to ask you to to answer this question. See my little rubber chicken? I do. He's a frequent fryer. (laughs) All right, here you go. Okay, what caused him to fall? Oh, was it gravity, Bill? Are you blaming me? Did you drop the chicken? Ah! I dropped the chicken. So this is the problem. Everybody thinks it's someone else. So when I work with individual contributors and I try to help them with leadership and team effectiveness and organizational culture, project management, they're like, yeah, but Kimberly, it's our managers who are the problem. Then I go to the managers and I say, okay, come on, here's the way to be more effective leaders and managers. And they say, yeah, but our executives are the ones you really need to to take care of. Then I go to the executives and they're like, Kimberly, it's the president. <laughs> then I go to the president and he says, yeah, the CEO. And the CEO says, well, when the chairman dies, we'll be able to make some changes. Literally, Bill, I contacted one of my clients after their chairman died. And I said, I'm so sorry to hear that your chairman died. And the person said, yes, but now we can make some good changes. They're waiting for people to die. Are you kidding me? So nobody feels responsible, Bill. I say this, look in the mirror. We are yeah. somehow contributing to the crap that we don't like in our companies. And yeah. we have some power, however tiny, to make a positive difference to that. Do you think then, like when, I mean, you're seeing the news, right? Like you've got CEOs all over the place. No, oh, you got to come back five days a week, right? Let's <laughs> go back to the old way. Let's do it. Like that worked. We were making oodles of money when everybody was working from home too. But I want to go back to five days a week. Like, why, why do you think that that is happening? I think that's the easy answer. It takes time to stop, think, organize, plan, big why. Why would we need to come back? And who are the stakeholders? And what exactly would be the purpose and goals of coming back and the measures of that success? A lot of people do what I call rush to solution. 
They don't think about why, who, or what, or the measures of success. They just think about how to do something. And that is a guarantee for having one-fourth the success rate in your projects, according to some of the research I've seen. So, all right, let's talk about now, we know why companies are making the dis- disconnect. How is that maybe different for teams or why teams fail or why leaders fail? And if they're well, different, is it different reasons or is it the same stuff? Well, so I'll tell you why teams fail. This is, oh, people get so tired of me saying, well, according to research, I am a scientist. Okay, I have a master's in physics. I love data. I love science. I love research. So according to the research out of MIT Sloan, the top causes of failure in global teams, and they studied teams from quite a few different countries. Number one was they didn't build trusting relationships. Number two was communication was less than suboptimal. That wasn't their words, right? And it involved not only language and culture, but it involved problem solving, decision making. They didn't have ways to do those effectively. Number three and four were they didn't have clear, shared, aligned goals. Now, whose job is it to build trusting relationships, have good communication, problem-solving, decision-making, and clear, shared, aligned goals? The leaders. Yes. Hello, your pills. <laughs> so it is a failure of leadership that is leading to a failure in teams. How pervasive do you think the problem is? Like, when you, Look, you've been doing this for 20 years. How bad is it? And, or let me ask a question a different way, maybe. How often is it? Maybe I'll put you in a spot. Don't name names. How often is it like the CEO or their direct versus the middle? Well, I don't say this out loud anymore, but I used to say the fish rots from the head. Sure. So here's what I do. Bill, I have so many consulting and clients over the last 20 years. So many people I've worked with. I mostly work in Japan. It just works better because here's what happens when I work with people in Silicon Valley. I get called in by some C-level or VP-level executive, and they tell me about the problems and how I need to fix their people. And then they're sitting there with their pen about to sign this contract for lots of money. And I say, don't sign that contract, please, before you sign that. I know you want me to fix your people. But when I find out that somehow you and the other executives are somehow contributing to the problems here, how do you want me to tell you? I say so nicely as I can, right? And they're like, oh, yes, Kimberly, just tell us directly. Oh, okay. Then they sign the paper. Then three months later, when I come to them and say, hey, here's our plan based on the inputs I gathered from your people. And there's a few things that the executives could do to contribute to a positive impact. And oh, yeah, we want to hear Kimberly. And I tell them what was said advice to the executives about how to be better leaders of this organization. Do you know what the first question they ask me, Bill, almost every time? I want to say, who said that? (laughs) Yeah. Who said that? So the first question they ask is, who said that? Seriously, is that what really matters? And here's what happens next. Oh, a week or two later. Oh, Kimberly, we're going in another direction. Now, one client was this billion dollar startup, right? Startup, meaning like seven to 10 years of a startup. Yeah. And I, working with their engineering team for like a year and a half, really trying to get them on the right track because people were quitting and all that stuff. So now I start to say, oh my God, this is an issue with the CEO and the president. And so I start to confront the president and the CEO in the hallway and say, hey, can I talk to you? I'd like to come in and have a conversation. There's some things I've, I've seen and I've heard that might be helpful to you. And you know what happens after that? Oh, thank you, Kimberly. We're going in another direction. They stop hiring me, Bill. So my goal is always be effective or be fired. And for the most part in the 
technically arrogant Silicon Valley with the executives who are so concerned with who said it and not concerned with changing, they don't care. It's such an ego fest. It's incredible, Bill, that they wouldn't care more about their people than their ego. But yeah. that is my sad analysis. Oh, I've seen a bunch of that too. What's the difference culturally in Japan? So interesting. In Japan, I do mostly work with middle layer people. And the executive, one executive comes in, Mr. Sakai. And he comes in and he says, I am Mr. Sakai. I am 62 years old. I am going to retire and play golf. You must lead this company. Pay attention. <laughs> so they know that they are giving the leadership to the next generation and they support it. They have no intention of changing. They know it, but they want the middle layer to be in a better position than they were. And is that working? It is amazing. So one of my clients in Japan, this is so weird. I started working with them 15 years ago, 2007. They say, yeah, come and do this global leadership program. 15 days, Bill, five days in Germany, 20 people meet and kick off four or five impossible projects, learn leadership, learn teams. Then three months later, we meet in Houston. We work more on these projects, leadership and teams. Three months after that, boom, we, we meet in Tokyo. And on the last day, they present their impossible projects at Tokyo headquarters to the executives. We have done that. We did that 18 times before 2020. 18 times. Wow. So we had like 70 impossible projects, 300 graduates. Graduates of the first program from 2008 are presidents of divisions now. And it's grown way bigger than me, of course. There's common language, common framework, common set of tools for leadership, for teams, for organizational effectiveness. And what I can see of that company is I think they are definitely succeeding at globalizing and becoming a more effective organization. Is it because of me? Hell no. It's because of them. I love that. And I love just, by the way, just the, the word culture, the, how you defined it up at the top of the show, was very action-oriented. There's a lot of activity in culture. We talk about it like it's a standalone static thing, though, right? I think people don't understand culture. It's really that invisible thing. Yes, it's not a static thing. So what happens with culture is it is created by people at the top model the way. That's one of the first things with the leadership challenge, model the way. Be an example of the kind of behavior you want to see. So if you're the founder of a company or you're the CEO and you tell people one thing, but you do another, it doesn't work. So do this, make a peace sign, peace sign with your hand and place it on your chin, place it on your chin. Your chin is right here. Oh, chin, sorry. Yeah, see, this is what a lot of leadership gets wrong. They say one thing, but they do another. And part of my challenge, like in Japan, they're trying to work less and not have these crazy working hours. And the manager says, hey, please go home at a regular hour, but they stay until 9, 10, 11 p.m. So you have to do what you want other people to do. And then you have to celebrate. Celebrate what's aligned with your culture. If you really want your culture to be strong, you have to get up in front of a team of people and say, hey, look, Bill did this. And he exhibited exactly the kind of organizational cultural values we want to see more of, right? And you celebrate those successes. So that's the kind of thing where you have to celebrate the successes that are aligned with what you want to see more of in the future. And then you need to make sure that you course correct people who violate those cultural norms to the point of firing your best salesperson yeah. if they violate your cultural norms. Absolutely. Yeah. I had an old boss who always used to say to me, culture is what you reward. 
So if you're rewarding mm-hmm. the wrong behaviors, you're gonna that's yeah. the culture you'll build. If you reward the right behaviors, that's the culture you'll build. I love I have a very simple. What's rewarded is repeated. What's measured is what matters. And a lot of companies aren't even measuring things very meaningfully. If you measure only financial results, according to a Harvard Business Review, I've seen lots of data on this. If you have only financially driven goals and metrics of success, you make 20% less money. (laughs) But if you say like, hey, we want to delight the customers. We want to be a standout in the industry that other people admire and respect. And as a result of that, make lots of money. Then you make more money. It's very simple math. Okay, I want to ask you a question here. Let's say I'm a new leader. I want to build out a culture in my organization. How would you counsel me? Where should I start? What should I start focusing on? So what I like to do is have a values exercise. So one of the things we do is say, okay, what are your individual values? And let's see if we can create some team values. So, you know, there's all these charts you can get with, here's 30 values, pick your top five. And then the teams can start comparing. So I did this with an executive team about a year and a half ago. And they all said, well, here's what I care about personally. And then professionally, here's the synergies. And then you have to figure out what is it that you as a team value more than money, more than status, more than ego. And if you have that conversation, you don't just talk about, oh, yeah, integrity. You talk about what does it look like when I'm in alignment with that integrity value? And what does it look like when I'm out of alignment? And what, how do I get back on track? And then you can create these agreements, right, of how we're going to signal each other. So the executive team starts off by saying, okay, here's the values we share. Here's what it looks like, feels like, smells like, tastes like, sounds like. And here's how we're going to call each other on our behaviors to get back in alignment with these non-negotiable things. And that ends up creating these working together agreements. And Bill, most teams will never do this. You know what they call it in in Silicon Valley when I try to get them to do this kind of thing? Touchy-feely crap. (laughs) (laughs) Sprinkles on ice cream, right? Oh, my God. So this is the cause of failure, but it's touchy-feely crap. So I went through this exercise with about six hours with one executive team because they were dealing with CEO who was maybe mentally ill and quite toxic, and they were trying to protect their people from the negative influences of this That, that goes to my next question, so though. They, like, if I'm an employee and I'm in a culture I don't like, or I see maybe it's toxic in some way, how do I yeah. start to change that as an individual, right? Especially if, like, you're afraid <laughs> to do anything. You don't want to leave good company. You like the work you're doing. But, like, how do you start changing the culture as an individual contributor? <laughs> You know, I was an individual contributor for the first nine years of my career uh, at Hewlett Packard. And what I would do is I would create a pizza lunch. Let's get together and do a learning from each other. And let's have somebody do a chalk talk about what their job is. And then I would start the usability interest group. Hey, who cares about the user interface design? Or then I would start a sharing library. Hey, bring some books in and everybody we can give each other our books. I would just do stuff like that. Or I would create uh, social events. I didn't realize that I wasn't supposed to change the culture just because I was an individual contributor. There's always something you can do. So I like those are all really, by the way, very actionable and great ideas. I want to ask you a question. On your LinkedIn profile, you have a video where you talk about culture and leadership really specifically. Uh, you say leaders act, ACT, action, yeah. communication, thinking. 
So I love, like, by the way, super simple, easy framework. For our listeners, could you tell us more here? Like, why do those three differentiate leaders and how do they come together then for you? Yes, it's simple. Leaders act like a leader. The five areas and 30 behaviors of the best leaders on planet Earth are well known and they're called the leadership challenge. So you do those things and it's a frequency thing. And the more frequently you practice those 30 behaviors, the better leader people will think you are. It doesn't matter what that little nasty voice inside your head is saying. You know, the voice that says 40,000 things, mostly negative. So you act like a leader, do the things proven to make people believe you're a great leader. And some of them are things like ask for feedback. The lowest practice of the 30 behaviors in the world is ask for feedback about how my behavior as a leader impacts your work. And then communicate like a leader. What does that mean? Well, the most important communication skill is listening, 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 two ears and one mouth, use them in that ratio. And I'm not talking about listening to respond. I'm talking about generous listening, listening to people for three minutes longer than normal until it's physically painful and you want to dig your heart out with a rusty spoon, Bill. And when you speak, speak about possibilities. Create a clear and vivid image of the future, that North Star that makes people want to jump up and say, I got some ideas. That is the communication, possibility speaking and generous listening. And then thinking like a leader. You know what, Bill? I honestly don't care. So what does that mean? What does it mean to think like a leader? That you understand the difference between leadership and management, a group of people in a real team, and that you turn common sense into common practice. That is it. But even if you don't think like a leader, as long as you act like a leader and communicate like a leader and fake it, I don't mind how you think, right? Fake it till you make it. I must be faking it because I sure ain't making it. <laughs> or maybe I'm not competent enough to, uh, to fake it either, right? And competency is not one of the top, top uh, attributes either. You don't have to feel competent. That's the problem is that like we have this really uh, low self-esteem voice in our head. Just do these 30 things, the leadership challenge, check it out. You can find it online. Yeah. It's a wonderful book. There's a quick summary. Do those 30 things and people will think you're a better leader. We'll be sure to put it in the show notes for sure. All right, I've got two more questions for you before we wrap it up. So we've talked a lot about culture and leadership today. Who are the people that you have come across in your career and you say, I want to emulate that person? Wow. All right. So (laughs) I talked to one president of a huge multinational corporation. He's the president of North America. And I had interviewed about 30 of his people and asking what's working, what's not working, what's missing, and if anything could change, what was possible. And then I talked to him and he was telling me about his big vision, his big dream for the future of the company. And I told him, excuse me, sir, but you're the only person who knows this. I've talked to 30 of your people and none of them, none of them know this. And he looked at me and he said, that's my bad, Kimberly. That's on me. I admire that kind of person. Yeah. There's not enough of them in the world, actually. Not enough leaders like that in the world. To have the humility to say, look in the mirror. If things aren't working, it's my responsibility. If things are working, it's my people's delight. Yes. All right. I've got one last question for you before we wrap up. You're a pretty inspirational person. I've had a lot of fun in our conversations, not only this one, but previously. Where do you go for inspiration? Where does the inspire go for inspiration? You know, last week, I live in Silicon Valley, and last week, 
this group of people that went on a totally virtual seven month leadership program, they finally came to Silicon Valley to meet each other for the first time. They were all working for the same company and they had never met in person, but they had gone through 68 hours of Zoom and seven months and done their amazing impossible projects all virtually. They came to Silicon Valley for four days and they fell in love with each other. It was amazing to watch them interact. We have people from Germany and from Japan and the U.S. all standing together arm in arm. And I couldn't help but think, last century, we were all at war with each other. And look at these people here. Purpose beyond profit, a mission that matters, uh, crossing borders and boundaries of every kind to work together to solve global problems profitably. That's what businesses do, solve global problems profitably. So I get inspired by them. Amazing. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, Kimberly, where can people find you? Where can listeners of the show find you if they want to uh, hunt you down? If you can spell my name, it's weefling.com. I've got a website, KimberlyWeefling.com, tells you more about what I do. SiliconValleyAlliances.com tells you about me and my global team, wonderful people. Or just call the police. They'll know where I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got some great books, too. So they, they can find you on Amazon as well, right? Oh, yeah. I'm on Amazon. Scrappy Project Management, it's such practical advice, and it is published in Japanese by Nikkei Business Press. I can't read Japanese, but I was told the jokes are not as funny, <laughs> and uh, I've got a whole bunch of other things. I wrote a book with my 12 scrappy gal pals about scrappy women in business. This is something we really should talk about sometime, Bill. Women in business. Oh, my God. I saw this woman wearing a shirt. She looked like she was about 70 or 80. And she, the shirt says, I can't believe I'm still protesting this crap. <laughs> That's a great t-shirt. Kimberly, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And for dealing with, my, dealing with my allergies too, for folks who could fly oh, hear, it through right. the, hear it through the mic, right? It's been great to have you on the show. Love the work that you're doing. And uh, I'm a huge fan and will continue to follow you. And, and uh, you know, I'd love to have you on the show sometime. We'll talk about sort of the women of leadership topic. <gasps> I would love to connect you with some amazing women who are doing some wonderful things. I happen to be connected with the woman who's the founder and CEO of the biggest revenue woman-owned business in the Bay Area, which has now gone global. Amazing. I'm sure she would love to talk with well, you. Well, let's, let's all get on the show together sometime. Oh, yeah. Okay, Bill. Thank you so much for making this happen. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Another great show. Another great week. We're out. Talk to you soon, Thanks everyone. for listening to Be Customer Led with Bill Stakos. We are grateful to our audience for the gift of their time. Be sure to visit us at BeCustomerLed.com for more episodes. Leave us feedback on how we're doing or tell us what you want to hear more about. Until next time, we're out. We're out.